Welcome. It's good to see all of you here in Palm Sunday. It's been a while since we've actually been able to gather like this on a um, Holy Week holiday season. So greetings. Glad you're here. Are you awake? Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure. Weren't the kids incredible? Thank you. We just uh, so enjoy being able to um, have your kids in our midst and, uh, and be able to do what we can to participate with you and partner with you in raising kids who know and love Jesus, but more importantly, they know how deeply they are loved by Jesus. So we're grateful for that. Let me just um, begin with a word of prayer. Okay, Father, just open our time and our moment here as we look into your word. We think about this day, Palm Sunday, and all its implications. Uh, we just pray that you would guide us and lead us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been doing this series, and in some ways it's been kind of a difficult series because it's all about this kind of um, not yet, uh, or already not yet kind of sense that we live between the cross and the time when Christ comes again. And things have started, but they're not fully put in place to the end. And so we looked in this series, we've been looking at, in, in Scripture, there's, there's five different references to Jesus and the idea of a sword. And so we looked at the very first one, which is around grief and loss, which we experience in this life. It's important to experience. Where at one point, the prophet comes to Mary and she's holding baby Jesus and he says to her, um, a sword will pierce your soul too. With the understanding that it would be piercing her sons. And then there's confusion that comes in this time of crisis, in this time, this in-between place. At one point, Jesus is, is in the upper room and he says to his disciples, you have a sword and, and, and he says, if you don't, um, sell your cloak and buy one. And you're kind of wondering, why is Jesus saying this? And disciples in some ways are wondering too. Maybe they're thinking it's time that, that Jesus is going to begin this revolution and overthrow the government of Rome. And, and, and so, um, they are, I think, confused as, as we would be now, because wasn't he, bringing a peaceful kind of protest. And then there's this this scene just a few hours later. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've prayed, and now Judas comes to betray him, and and he's to be arrested. And and as he goes to do so, Peter, who made this claim, "I I will die for you, takes his sword that he... God, when Jesus said, bring it with you, and it's, it's not a big sword, it's just really this kind of more, this, this longer knife, and he slices off the ear of one of the servants of the pre- high priest, and, and Jesus says, put that away, Peter, I'm not leading a rebellion. And he heals the guy's ear, and as he heals the guy's ear, he looks at them and he goes, to those who came to arrest, those who are acting out in these evil intentions, whether they knew it or not. And he basically just says to them, but this is your hour. When darkness reigns. And you go from grief and loss and confusion. And this time there's times of darkness. I'm really grateful that Jesus said hour. And not years. Days. But there's a season. Weeping does come for the night. But joy comes in the morning we're told in Psalms. And then last week we got this concept of sin. This whole idea that, that three times in the Old Testament... A thousand years before, 500 years before, 250 years before Jesus comes, it's predicted that a, that he will be pierced for our transgressions. And then it's fulfilled on this Good Friday when we think of Good Friday. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to read this Palm Sunday passage. 
And what I want you to understand is we're going to be reading two passages. It's really important for, for you and for I to understand that Palm Sunday is about Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who comes in grace and mercy, wanting to woo the hearts of all of us to respond to his love. But then in a moment, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture where the sword comes in, both in Revelation 1, but specifically in Revelation 19, where now we see not the Prince of Peace, but the King who comes in glory and triumph, who brings what our hearts in many ways long for, is justice and judgment to make things right. So in this passage of Scripture, it says they brought the donkey and the colt to him, which is important to understand if you know something about horses and on our little hobby farm, we had a little foal one time and, and you don't separate the mom and the foal. They stay together. You can't ride a colt without mom being there. So the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And it ends with this little phrase. The entire city of Jerusalem, which was filled with people who came on this Passover pilgrimage, three festivals in which they might have the ability to come to Jerusalem from around the world, Jews who would be honoring their faith. In this one, the city's filled, and there's an uproar around as he enters, and they say, who is this guy? Which is the question we're going to kind of ask for a moment as we get into this passage. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me share with you, as best I can, um, and, and, and stay with me here because I need to do some explanation before we get into some more practical things, okay? Everybody okay with that? Good. Those of you online? Okay. Uh, what is Jesus wanting the people to understand as he comes into Jerusalem on a cult? Why ride into Jerusalem, not Bethlehem? Why on Passover weekend? All these questions. Why not a full-grown horse? What are the palm branches all about? Well, Jesus loved parables. Throughout his, his ministry, he would, he would speak in a parable, which would cause people to have to lean in and really understand and ask that question. What is he talking about? Who is he? And so, as he gives this, what I call, acted out parable, this is one of his messages that he did without words. And you have to understand it in this way. This was an acted out parable that they should have understood from the prophecy in the word of God. So the first note, just this, he came intentionally sending a message. There are three other pilgrimages. He could have came on any of those, but he comes on this one specifically where the lamb is coming to represent the passing over of judgment on anyone in that day when they left Egypt and they were free, they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And if the angel saw that, they were free, they were passed over. So Jesus intentionally stayed, though, in Bethany and came into Jerusalem because he, through this whole um, life, was fulfilling words that were said by prophets before him. And we're going to read primarily just Zechariah, but there was Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and you can, Micah, and you can go on and talk of Malachi, all these different prophets who were giving words. 
It says that he stayed intentionally at Bethany, which was located on the east side of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 says that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. This is the acted out parable. Like most everyone in the crowd, Matthew and also the disciples of Jesus, they didn't understand this. They didn't get it. In fact, it wasn't until after his death and resurrection and sometime afterwards that the disciples even fully understood what Palm Sunday was about. We read in Matthew chapter 21, what we had read here. He says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah that predicted the Messiah's arrival coming into Jerusalem from Bethany over the Mount of Olives. And then he goes on and he says, quoting another passage in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble and riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Traditionally, a king, when they would enter into a city, they would would not ride on a colt. The colt was was known in, in that time that when they came, they were coming not with the force of war, they were not waging war. When they were going to rage war, they would come in on a, on a stallion, often potentially on a white stallion horse, as they'd ride into town as the, the king who's coming in glory to put down all resistance. But what he's quoting here is, is this interesting passage where he says, no, your king is coming to you in peace. He's the prince of peace. At this time, he's not coming with with the external you know coming externally to force you to do what he wants you to do he's not coming to occupy some territory where your heart still stays resistant he's actually coming out of this deep expression of love to reconcile all people to himself he's coming to bring peace and he does through, through grace and mercy and he does as the king This incredible act of sacrifice dies a criminal on a cross. That's the picture that Jesus was giving. And that's what they were to understand, but they were caught up to see what only they see, right? And then you also have this picture of all these palm branches. What are all these palm branches about? Well, just about 200 years before that, around 160 years before Jesus, there was a man named Simon Maccabeus, and, and it was the Maccabean Revolt, which they, they overthrew um, the Seleucids, which were the, uh, the Greek government that came from Alexander the Great. And at that point, in that city of Jerusalem, they actually, with Simon Maccabeus and his sons and, and a number of others, they over... Um, came the soldiers there, kicked them out, and then kicked them eventually out of the land. And the people, when Simon Maccabeus came back into the city, there was this triumphal entry, and this triumphal entry was given with, with palms and branches. It actually says in, in an intertestamental book, which is if you know, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament are some books called intertestamental books. One is called First Maccabeus. And in First Maccabeus chapter 13, verse 51, it says they shouted Hosanna, and with branches of palm trees, and with harps and cymbals and hymns and songs. They honored their hero, who had come through force and expelled the enemy. And that's the way kings get treated. When they come in with that sense of of being the hero who's overcome the enemy. Now what I want you to catch is this. Jesus was painting a picture He was acting out a parable for all of us to understand, for them to understand at that time that he, who is God in flesh, 
was coming to sacrifice his life, giving his life, because what he wanted for people's hearts to do, what he wanted the response to be, was not out of some, some external force of fear, but out of an internal pulling of love, that if God would love me that much, that he would die on a cross and take all the things that I've done that have been wrong, and he would remove them from my life so that the Father in heaven would see me the way he sees Jesus, his son, without sin, forever and ever. That means today, tomorrow. That means you're yesterday. And he wants you to live before God in this kind of relationship, even though you still sin. He wants you to, to experience that. And then you have to now click forward. We'll go from, from Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. And when you get to Revelation, there is a chapter 1 and verse 19 that both speak of the sword that Jesus carries. It is a different picture. This is a picture of of glory and triumph. We're going to read in a moment a picture of one who comes still out of love, but with justice and judgment. That which every heart longs for, unless it's against us, right? We all cry for justice till someone says, I want justice for what you did. And then Jesus says to you, you know what? If you, if you turn to me, I will allow for the things that have been done against me to be your justice. You will now no longer have to pay for that because I paid that price. And so we get to this chapter and here's the king in chapter one, verse 10, it says it was the Lord's day. And why was worshiping in spirit, which means that you can actually worship in such a way that your heart is open to God to move in it. Or you can come here and sing songs and go through kind of actions, go home and say, I put in some time, God, check the box. But he's worshiping in the spirit. And what happens when he's worshiping in the spirit is that suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And when I turned to see who he was speaking to me, I saw someone like the son of man. Now, this is written about 80 to 90 years um, A.D. So we're looking about a generation, maybe 40 or 50 years from the death of Christ, his, his death and his resurrection and ascension. John is writing this, the apostle. He is on um, an island called Patmos. He's been banished from Ephesus where he's been living. And he's in this place where he is exiled as an imprisonment because he was stirring up so many people in, in wanting to follow Jesus that they had to get him out of town. And this isn't just some kind of vacation on an island where there's a beach and everything else like some of you just experienced. This is much more like a Nelson Mandela's exile and imprisonment. If you've ever read anything about it, it was incredibly horrible. Years of isolation. And John goes on to describe what he saw in this highly symbolic, and, and, and you have to understand, Revelation is written in apocalyptic symbolism. It, it, it's stating something they see, but giving imagery that helps you understand some deeper meaning. Jesus comes with a long robe with a golden sash, hair as white as wool, as white as snow, eyes that are like flames of fire. And from his mouth comes a two-edged sword. What is a sword? That's not a real sword. Two-edged meaning it's able to cut between bone and marrow. It's able to cut into the truth of things so that everybody sees it and goes, that is true and right. And his face shines like the sun when all its brilliance and a voice that thunders like a mighty ocean waters. It's just showing this incredible picture 
of God in Christ who comes again. But if you see this picture, it's not till chapter 19 that we again see a similar picture of Jesus. And here's the one I want us to, to actually look at. It's similar except for a couple things are added. Listen to this in, in, as I read it. <clears throat> I saw the heavens opened and a white horse was standing there. Get the imagery? Remember I said, you know, came in on a colt to the donkey, now he's riding on a what? Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. This is not a military operation, right? This is a righteous war that will put down evil in this world that resists his kingdom. Every heart that stands opposed to him. And his eyes were like flames of fire, kind of what we saw before. In his head, there are many crowns as his victory, his triumph. And, and I love this. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen, which means, I believe, not only angels, but all those who come with him who have been redeemed, who have been made pure, not because of their own actions, not because they lived this really good life, but because they trusted in one who lived for them and gave their life for him so that now your heart responds, not out of, I got to do this, I ought to do it, I got to measure up. If I measure up, then God will go, good job. No. It's the heart that trusts and says, I realize I'm broken. I realize that I hurt people in, in ways that are, and I don't want to live that way. And then you say, God, forgive me. And he said, I did. And now your response is out of gratefulness. And these who follow him are pure in their heart, he says. Followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword. To strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. And he will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe and on his thigh was written. This title. King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Again, note. Jesus isn't riding a colt. He's on a white horse. What I think is interesting. On his robe and on his thigh. Um, is tattooed possibly for all you guys who like tats. Um, I'm in trouble now. Okay, um, the King of all kings and Lord of all king, lords, coming to rule and to judge, and this time, still coming out of love, but this time coming to remove all evil and resistance to him and to set up his kingdom where there is no sin, where there is no impurity, where there is nothing that can stand in the presence of God, but that which has been bathed and made pure by the very presence of God through an open, willing heart. This is Jesus coming in justice, in judgment to bring justice. I just think as I look at that picture of the mid, you know, those old Wild West films where a guy would come riding in on this white horse and behind him would be a posse, right? And they would ride into town with this posse uh, in order to settle the score with all the evil and wicked that has happened by some who have been oppressing and abusing the people in the land. And here comes Jesus. One New Testament commentator explains the symbolism this way. The white horse, uh, the, white, uh, the horse's white color represents purity or victory. For this rider is holy and goes forth to be a triumphant conqueror. During ancient times, victorious Roman generals entered their conquered cities in chariots drawn by white horses. This was imagery that when John was giving it, people knew this was at the height of Rome's power back in AD 90. 
What I want you to note is the contrast between Palm Sunday and what they call the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. The first coming in Palm Sunday and the second coming. In the first coming, Jesus um, comes, let me put it this way, in the second coming, we just saw it, Jesus comes on a white horse with a posse of white horses and angels in, in the redeemed following him. Now on Palm Sunday, what you get is a picture of Jesus riding in on this colt with 12 disciples. Which one's more impressive? Right? Who would you rather be following? So Jesus is no longer riding this humble, untrained young colt. He returns in this fiery white charger, ready to settle the score. So every year, when we think of the passion and suffering as we have been looking at this passage of scripture from the time that Jesus comes to the time he comes again, this in-between space, every year we are reminded of this fact that Jesus has come because he wants to give time. He's delaying time before he comes in judgment. People all times wonder, well, why, man, God, if he's really God, why doesn't he come in as judge? Because he's delaying, he's giving time. As I get to the end of the message, I'll explain that more fully. But every year on Palm Sunday... It reminds us of this truth. A day of judgment is coming. Justice will be served. The Bible points to this. It's an incredibly important truth. It's a truth that should anchor us in reality. That if you have been wounded, abused, or hurt, and you have been in this place where you've been waiting for justice, justice will come. Or if you're in a place and God is still wooing you by his heart to him, justice will come. Judgment will be here. So the few moments that I have, what I want to do is kind of explain this truth and how important justice is, how important judgment is, how important this picture of Palm Sunday, which ends here in this day of the Lord, this, this promise of peace or this, this, this offering of peace compared to this promise of judgment to come. What I want to do is just share with you an analogy that might help you understand how important it is that we have to live with this concept that justice will happen someday. There will be judgment. And so what I want to do is use um, a sports analogy, and I'll use um, baseball because this last week was an opener for the Twins, right? Any Twins fans here? Any Cubs fans here? Yeah! Okay, see, the Cubs win. Um, you blew it. Um, Okay, I want to look at baseball, if you would, and just understand how like the ump works and how fairness and justice is so important to the game, right? Imagine a baseball game if there are no rules or, or where the rules just kept changing. There's no fairness, no justice, no umps making calls, acting like judges. What do you think would happen to the game? What do you think would happen by the second or third inning? How do you think the people playing it would feel, let alone the people in the stands? And I, I want to make it really clear. Life isn't a game, but there's this analogy can really work when we talk about justice, judgment, this, this anchoring of understanding that there is a day and a delay and a finally a day of judgment coming. That justice is anchored. It, it's going to happen, folks. The word makes it really clear that although life isn't a game, we live in this, in this kind of realm where we make commitments, there's, uh, there's agreed, um, there's shared agreements, that's how a society works. And we um, live by rules and laws, we live by those kind of relational um, 
commitments that allow for marriages and families and businesses and lives to flourish. Without it, there's three things that normally would happen. Without this understanding of justice and this need for judgment, you would live with anxiety, you would live with apathy, and you would live with anger. Those three things are very much a part of what happens when, when the game is, is poorly called. So a poorly called game will result in anxiety, apathy, and anger. Think about it for a second. And I'll use, um, there's different realms in which we've been delegated authority. We've been delegated authority as governments. We've been delegated authority in businesses. We've been delegated authority in schools and, and families and in marriages. We've been delegated authority in different areas where we have been called to live. And as parents is one of them. So I'll use kids in these analogies as we look at it. So a poorly called game results in anxiety. Think about it for a second. When someone keeps changing the rules, the natural outcome is what? Anxiety. I mean, just think about it. If you, if you change the rules, you have no basis on which to trust and then make choices. You make choices on the fact that, that your spouse is going to respond to you in a way that's that's in agreements that you shared, in commitments you've made. Let me put it in this um, way. Think of it this way. Tell your child that you're going to pick them up at a certain time and then fail to do so. That is a break of trust, right? Tell your child again and again that you're going to pick them up at a certain time and again and again fail to come through. And you will have a child who will live with anxiety and will not have an ability to trust. That's why justice is so important. That's why following through on these rules are so important. You'll actually teach your child that they have no control or you'll cause the child to be over-controlling. Because they're just trying to manage the situation because nothing else makes sense. On the other hand, consistently pick them up, do what you say you're going to do, mean what you say, and you will raise a child that has the ability to trust you and there will be a growing security within them because a poorly called game results in anxiety. A world not anchored in justice and righteousness destroys trust and devastates relationships and we see it all the time. God set this world up with laws and rules and agreements that as we would, as people, um, be able to hold to them, it would create the kind of space and the kind of place where people would begin to develop trust and would live with a sense of peace and security. But we know that's not the way it lurks in this world, right? Because sin has entered in. But God tells us at some point, he's anchored it, that at some point this will all be dealt with. And that's why throughout the Bible, in this time where we're kind of going, but you know what? I've experienced this world and it isn't like full where the rules are followed through on. God keeps telling us, I am righteous. I am justice. I will. I will come. There is a final day. The next one is a poorly called game. Just think about it this way. It it results in apathy. If there is no consistency and and the calls vary at the whim of the ump, right? That's whenever you want to make a call. Um, After a while, the person playing is going to give up, right? If there's no consistency, they go, why try? Right? There's no reason to to really follow through or do something because it just doesn't matter. 
Uh, Kids are really smart about this. It doesn't take them very long in a home to understand the real rules. You see, there are stated rules that we say that we want them to follow, that we say that we're following, and then there's what I would call the um, rules that are unwritten, that when it's, you know, towards self-interest and it seems to be, you know, convenient, then you move towards that direction. I mean, every kid is smart enough to understand that. Like, I'll just say, I'll pick on dads. Dad, if you say to your son, I want you to, to act and speak respectfully to your mother. And that's the stated rule. And then he watches you in many different ways speak disrespectfully and not through your actions respect your wife, his mother. What's going to happen? Right? He's going to go, oh, it doesn't matter, does it? That's just the way it is. Let me put it a different way. Parents, let's put it this way. Tell your kids it's really important to have a relationship with God. It's really important to, to know God and his word and understand him. And then, and then seldom read God's word yourself and, and seldom actually be involved in a community where faith is being engendered and, and grown. And, and your child will very soon pick up that what you might talk about really isn't lived out. And if you think about it, it doesn't take a rock scientist to, to figure out that they're going to have a lack of interest in the things of God as well. Because a poorly called game results in apathy. A world not anchored in justice and righteousness will eventually lead to the feeling that nothing you do really matters. But God tells us there's a delay. Palm Sunday came bringing peace in order to sacrifice to woo hearts and love. They would respond to me willingly, but there will come a time when it will come to an end and the ump will make the call. And in that call, he will at that point, with force, with his presence, remove all that is evil unless that person or that being repents. And um, let me just share with you this last A poorly called game results in anger. This is kind of the bad news right here, right? But it's really important to know. And this is something you can bank on. Just go to any high school or middle school or kids sports and and just be there for a, a moment. And when a ref makes a bad call, what happens? They're angry. Have I seen that? They're up in arms. I remember... When I was, when I was coaching, and, um, I, it was in this time where my daughter was playing hockey, right here, and, uh, and, and there was this guy who would just, when at these games would just go crazy. And, and when a call wasn't called the way it should be done, he'd lose it. And my, my wife couldn't even stand to sit next to that person. Until I finally convinced her I'll be good. I won't do this anymore. <laughs> no, no. I was a coach on the bench losing it, not sitting next to her. Is that true? A world not anchored in justice and righteousness produces frustration and anger. I mean, just watch a game and you watch the ump and the ump standing here like this and the ball's like way up here. A guy grabs at it and he goes, Strike! What would you do? We start, we, you know, saying, you know, you got eyes up, but you know, you know all the calls out there, right? He sits down, he gets there again, the ball comes, well, and he dives over here to get it, and he goes, strike two. 
And your, your anger and frustration is building. Because you know what? We are wired for justice. This game that they're playing calls all of us go, we know it needs to be just. We know the rules need to be in line. And what happens in that is in life, we also hunger for justice. Why all the crime shows today? Because we're living in a day and age where our hearts want to see that what is happened can be recalled and they can actually follow up and injustice can be served even though in this life it doesn't always happen. But God does say this, there is a day that is coming. He is riding in on a white horse. He will bring justice. He will bring judgment on all that stands against him. And God will not delay forever. The hard realities of, 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 of what this in-between time is like is in three things that you need to just, and I'll just mention them quickly. The hard realities that, that make this time so difficult while we wait is this. God has delegated authority to us for a period of time. Think about it. All those different sectors that I talked about, all those different places, you as a parent have authority. You as a, a business owner or board of directors have authority. Our, our cities are governed with those with authority. And here's the reality of it. In this in-between time, when we are hungering and we long for justice, God has delegated in this time authority to us. And that means there will be missed calls. It's just this, because we're human and we're sinful and we're selfish. God has given mankind the right to rule. And we are created in his image and given authority in this world. And he's delegated that authority to us. And we do not have God to blame. There is a responsibility that lies on our shoulders. But God will not allow this to be that way forever. God will not delay forever. There is a day of judgment coming. Not all the calls are made right right now. But they will be made right. The missed calls or the bad calls will be made right. The game, think about this. The game is being recorded and there will be an appeal process. You ever watch it in the, in, oh man, I wish it'd get done. How often they gotta look at that film again? It won't take God one, but one look at the film. For those of you who are sitting here thinking, I'm, I'm living with anxiety and I'm, I feel like I don't care about life anymore and I'm really angry, grown bitter because this thing has happened to me and here's what God says. Vengeance is mine. Now is the time to forgive. Let it go. Don't let it destroy your life. And I know I'm speaking to some right now and you know that God's speaking to you and he's saying you can continue to let what's been happened in the past continue to, to create, create anxiety and apathy and, and, and develop this bitter anger within you. But there's only one way to do it. It's what Jesus showed us on the cross. You, you do have to forgive and let go, which doesn't mean that they won't pay for it. It just means that it will be delayed at a certain time it will be coming. And the, and, and the last thing that you, you need to be aware of is that God's delay is for a reason and it's for a season of time. It is from Palm Sunday till the day of the Lord. It is from the offer of peace till the promise of judgment. 
And there is a period of time that God is giving all people, even the person that you're maybe being asked to forgive and let go and recognize that vengeance is God's, not yours. There is a time that's coming. But in that time, God is seeking to work in their hearts and your hearts that you would turn and you would walk with him and allow him to move into your heart as imperfectly as it may be. But your heart would say, God, I long for you and what you did on the cross. I want to live with this understanding that you've forgiven me and I want to forgive others. I want to pray that prayer you prayed. Forgive me my sins and, and as I forgive those who trespass against me, right? I want to live this out, God. I want heaven to come through me to earth now because someday when heaven comes, I want to live fully in it. It's for a season. So I want you, as the worship team comes forward, I want you to, to walk, just, I'm going to read these verses from Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter is well aware of this coming of Christ. And he's dealing with a similar situation where people are saying, it never changes, justice isn't coming. There's no anchoring of this sense of a final day. I just want to say, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Let go of anxiety. God, God is going to deal with all the things that don't seem like, the, you know, it's applying from a rule standpoint. Listen to what he says. I want to remind you that in the last days, in, 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 in the Bible, when you see, read the last days, last days always mean from Palm Sunday, crucifixion, resurrection, all that time, Till when he comes again. That's hard for us to understand. But throughout the Old Testament, whenever they speak of the day of the Lord and things like that, one of the reasons it was confusing for people is because they'd meld these two events together. And now, since Jesus has come, the, on the New Testament side of it, whenever they write last days, they mean whenever the ascension, after the ascension occurred, there is the last days. So he says, now in the last days, which means we've been living with this, there will come scoffers who will mock the truth and follow their own desires. Here's their line of argument. So Jesus promised to come back, did he? Then where is he? He'll never come. By far back as anyone can remember, everything's been exactly the same since it was, since the first day of creation. And then Peter goes, but wait, wait, wait. They deliberately forget this fact. They have all kinds of explanations for this fact, that God did destroy the world with a mighty purifying flood long after he had created the heavens and earth by the word of his command. There was a flood. He gave the earth a bath up from its sin. Started over. And now by the same powerful word of his command, the present heavens and earth are resorted. They're being stored up like you would store up wood on your, on your outdoor fireplace. They're going to burn here at some point. It's being stored up. For a mighty purifying fire. This time, instead of a bath, he's going to bring a purifying fire being kept for the day of judgment when all the ungodly will perish. Anyone who says, I don't want you, God. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. Now listen to these words. They're basically, God is saying, your timing isn't my timing. This delay that you're worried about, you have to recognize my timing and what I am doing. He says this. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. He isn't really being slow about his promised return, even though it sometimes seems that he that way. But rather, his delay simply reveals his loving patience towards you, because he does not want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Folks, the day of the Lord is surely coming, he says, 
In fact, as unexpectedly as a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the heavenly bodies will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be burned up. But we are looking forward to God's promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is fully at home and all things are set right. The words that stand out for me, and I'll close in this. God's delay simply reveals his loving patience towards you. He holds off justice to the last possible moment. He patiently waits, hoping we will turn and be saved from the consequences of our attitudes and actions. And I read that, I just am so reminded of my dad when he... um, would be leveling justice. You know, he'd call to my brother and I, who's two years older, and he would say, Keith, Kevin, stop what you're doing now. And we'd keep doing it. And then all of a sudden he would go, 10, 9, 8, 7. I can hear it in my head. We were got that so many times. Because really, when you think about it, you're good parents, and the last thing you want to do is, is bring the consequences that are going to occur that create pain or a little kid, I know you got to, whatever it's got to be. The last thing you want to do is to have that happen. So you, you delay, you, to, you do it all to the last moment. You wait and wait because you just don't want to level that. There are parents here who have kids in middle school and high school, and you're letting them get away with consequences that really need to be dealt with. Because the last thing you want to do is deal with their consequences. And sometimes it even goes further. It's because you don't want people to see something in you that looks bad or wrong. And Jesus says, I've come to heal that. But here's the truth. I remember when I was a parent and my daughter was here. And I don't know if she remembers this. But I remember I'd count 10, 9, 8, 7. I'd get to 3. I'm a, really a soft. I'd go 2 and a half. <laughs> 2. One and three quarters. One and a half. Because the last thing I wanted to do was have them have to have force in any way for them to face any consequences. I would much rather, like Palm Sunday, their hearts go, man, I can't believe you how much you love me. I want to respond. And I just want us to kind of close our eyes for a moment and as we move into this song for in a moment, I just want you to... I'm going to ask you to stand, would you? Let's stand and, and do this in a way where you just will give a moment to listen to the Lord. God doesn't want the last day to come. He's been putting it off. He's doing everything possible to cause you, his child, to rethink your life. Whatever strategy you might be living by that may be selfish and could be hurting others and it's ultimately hurting God. God doesn't want that day to come. And I don't know. I just have this sense. I don't know. Is, is, I, I believe he's speaking to someone. Man, I don't know what you may be doing. But I do know that the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now in this moment. And a day is coming, possibly even within this week, where you will face the consequences. Because God, if you're his child, he loves you so much, he will sometimes bring the consequences forward because he wants your heart to not live in this any longer. But I just want to call to you, wherever you may be at, 
that God is lovingly calling you to come to him right now and to turn your heart toward him. It may mean you need to sit down with someone who you can really trust and expose what's been going on and share and invite God into it. It may be that you are in a place where God is speaking to you right now and you've never, ever experienced his love and forgiveness and you experience right now this sense of fear. He does not want you to live in fear. Right this moment, you can open your heart and receive him as your, as your savior and, and, and receive forgiveness for all that you've ever done and live in the purity of how he sees you because he sees Jesus in you. And all you have to do is say, wherever you're at right now, Lord Jesus, I open my heart and my will to you. I receive you and your forgiveness. I want to live in truth. You have been blessed and there's an assurance that you know that God is for you. God is here to save you. God is in your life, whatever you're facing right now. However much despair you're feeling, God is here. He's with you.